Hello and welcome to the Sound of History podcast. My name is Nick. My name is Mika. And this is a music history podcast where like three times a year I try and teach Mika stories from music history. That's more frequent than that. Yeah, not lately. It took like a month off, but you know. Sorry, I went crazy. <laughs> we were just busy. It's more Which that caused, than anything. Well, I mean. Which was crazy. Crazy. Had a lot going on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to think of what we need to update them on. Football's back. That's fun. I still have a book out that you can buy if That's you true. like young adult sci-fi novels. It's going to stay out, right? Yeah. I don't know how publishing works. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it should. But yeah, there should be signed copies soon. So it's lovely. Buy them. It's a lovely time. It's very sweet. Just like you. <laughs> well, yeah. So sorry we were gone for a while, but we're back for at least one episode. And then we'll see what happens from there. Because, I mean, we're busy for like the next month and a half. So I really think I'm going to lose my mind. I actually think it's happening. <laughs> So we'll see what happens. But follow us on social media. We'll try and give updates on there, but we're not good at that either. But twitter.com slash soundofhistory underscore is the best place to keep in contact with us. Let me know stuff I got wrong in these episodes. All right. For me, I get stuff wrong. Yeah, but you're supposed to. Not everything. <laughs> All right. Speaking of which, Mika is the host now. Mika is the host now. Hmm. What am I enjoying in life? I don't know. Not much. I'm enjoying you. I'm enjoying you a lot. I would like to just suggest a partner who's the type of partner who will take you to a little vacation if you are having a mental breakdown because you need to rest. Yeah, that was fun. It's very supportive and lovely, and I love you a lot. Love you too. Aww. Okay, enough of that. <laughs> um, Hey. You want to know how to make pumpkin muffins? I don't know. Okay. Um, I guess I'll think of something else to talk (laughs) about. I mean, other people might, but you already know how to make them, so I just let you make them, and then I eat them. Why do I feel like I read a good book or something recently? Besides reading more. You like The Maid or whatever you're reading? I loved The Maid. That was what it was. I loved The Maid. I listened to that one. It was really great. Um, Good book. Fun murder mystery situation. You can talk about the pumpkin muffins if you want. Well, apparently you don't want to know about the pumpkin muffins. I don't want to know about them. Other people out there might. If you're lazy and you want pumpkin muffins, you get a can of pumpkin, just like the normal size, like 15 ounce can of pumpkin and a box of spice cake mix. And chocolate chips. And you mix it all together. There is no measurement for the chocolate chips. You just put in put in the amount that you want. And you bake it at 350 for 15 to 16 minutes. And they're kind of gooey. But I guess you could bake them more. But really, they're just lovely. Very fun. They are good. I like them. I don't know. I guess that's all I have to say. Make it no longer the host now. Yeah, Mika no longer the host now. Okay. Goodbye. You're just done the rest of the podcast. Yeah, I'm checking out now. (laughs) Do you remember what we were talking about a month ago? Do 
disco. Yeah. Do you remember anything about disco? I remember a good amount about disco, actually. Surprising. I know. I really liked it. And I listened to it afterwards. Like, I just enjoyed disco. And I enjoyed that story. I enjoy that it was, like, a fun, like, focus on the good, happy escape for for queer people. And I enjoyed that it was, like, there was a club in someone's apartment for, like, a long time so that he had to get a bigger apartment. And... I don't bite me. And I like the music and I like the rhythm. And then I tried to listen to it and I realized that they're not good to listen to because the songs are six minutes long. <laughs> yeah, because you're supposed to dance to them. Yeah. So if you had to sum up the whole disco episode and story in like a sentence, what would it be? Just give us like the vibe of disco. People who need to dance, make fun music, dance, good time, commercialized. <laughs> I don't know if that was a sentence. I think that was like a series of sentence fragments, but we'll take it, I guess. I'm not wrong. No? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so this episode, we're going to talk about the Bee Gees. And I think I mentioned this like at the end of the last episode, but I didn't really want to do this episode on the Bee Gees. Because after researching and writing the disco episode, hearing about its origins and where it came from, it really felt kind of wrong to do the disco episode on a group of straight white men. Because, like, that's not not what it. it was. But for many people, the Bee Gees are synonymous with disco music. They were an absolute force in American pop music, and they are a group that feels like we kind of, like, have to talk about. I mean, I'm sure that their music has value. It's just another example of, you know, European straight white whatever being like this music is cool that other culture created i'm going to make it mine now and make money yeah it wasn't even necessarily that they just kind of stumbled into it but that's see that's okay like yeah it's not like i didn't it's not like i don't like the bgs or like i think their music is stupid like it's not that it's just i don't know i wanted to talk about like one of the pioneers one of the people who started it it's just they didn't have as much online for me to research and talk about so they would have been like tiny episodes so most of them were like one hit worn wonders so i'm excited to learn and the bgs BGs. were like the end of this decade they were just massive like unbelievably massive so it felt like we kind of had to it warrants attention disco what do you know about the bgs um you told me that they did like a movie soundtrack and that's that's what i know saturday night fever we talked about that in the last episode yeah we'll talk about it more so you don't do they do dance yeah is that them maybe i don't know <laughs> i just know it from despicable me it's okay oh, i haven't seen despicable me what i don't think so anyway no way they did staying alive that's their big song i mean yeah i know i i know okay. that one but like i i feel like they did that I feel I mean, like they, they did have. it. I'm going to look at it. I don't it. know. Also, their music or Despicable Me as well. The original Despicable Me, like, is actually wonderful. Okay. I mean, it came out in the time where I was already, like, I was in that era where I didn't want to watch cartoons for kids because I was in, like, high school or early college. And I didn't have younger siblings who watched these movies like you did. You missed out. <laughs> yeah, probably. It's the Bee Gees. Okay. 
I mean, it sounded like your impression sounded like them. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Okay. So Barry Gibb was born on the Isle of Man. Just one Gibb? Yeah. I don't know. I feel like normally it's the Gibbs. No, Barry Gibb. A singular Gibb. Yes, one Gibb. So far. So far, just one Gibb. Okay. He was born on the Isle of Man. Do you know where that is? No. It's a little island off the coast of Scotland, I think. In September of 1946. Oh, yeah, okay. The Isle of Man is an island in the Irish Sea off the coast of England. So close to Scotland. I think it's like (laughs) everything is close to everything there. (laughs) It's between like Ireland and England. His dad, Hugh Gibb, was a drummer and band leader of the Huey Gibb Orchestra. Huh. Wonder where they got their name. (laughs) They often played a ballroom and packed the place out. But he didn't earn much money as a musician and worked as a bread delivery driver during the day. What a life. Yeah. Just Sounds fun. drive bread around. On and your then, little English island. Yeah. <laughs> and then sell out ballrooms at night. That actually sounds quite lovely. <laughs> yeah, sounds great. As a child, Barry was badly scalded when he accidentally tipped over his mother's tea all over him. I did that one time. He went to the hospital where gangrene set in. Oh, that didn't happen to me. <laughs> I don't know the ending of that. That is all I have in the script. Is he like... But I mean, he does survived. Does his skin look weird? I don't think so. At least not that he like showed to the public. Maybe on his chest or something. I don't know. Well, I don't know that you like... D- get- gangrene and then like he's probably had scarring on the 22nd of december 1949 barry's twin brothers robin and maurice were born so now there's more gibbs there's not just the one gib there's three gibbs i didn't realize this was a family band yep soon after the family moved to manchester they hoped that manchester would offer better opportunities for work but that wasn't really the case The area was still recovering from World War II, and the family often struggled to make ends meet. Do you know what I bet they need, though? Bread. Bread. Yeah. (laughs) I think, I think, I might be wrong about this, but I think, like, Manchester was specifically hit hard because it was, like, very industrial, so it made a lot of the weapons for World War II, so whenever the Germans did air raids, they attacked the industrial centers to, like, cut off supplies. So, like, a lot of their factories and stuff were bombed. Man, I think that's true. I could be wrong about that. That's just... I hate people. (laughs) For most of this early period of their life, they had an interest in music. Neighbors would see them walking along, strumming on a tennis racket as if it were a guitar, and performing on a dock. Cute! (laughs) But in Manchester in 1955, they took it a step farther and formed a skiffle group called the Rattlesnakes. I don't remember what skiffle is. Is that when you play instruments? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, hold on. Let me rephrase. (laughs) You're not wrong. (laughs) A little bit more specific would be nice. (laughs) I'm wrong, though, because I'm thinking of like... Like, I'm going to play this, like, tin can. No, that that was skiffle. That's skiffle? For real? Yeah, it was like... The British, very early rock where kids were just like playing whatever they could. Hell yeah, I to remember. To like copy. You hated it when we played it. Well, yeah, I'm sure it was trash. It was kind of like folky rock. Like the more professional ones who actually had real instruments mm-hmm. were like 
more folky type stuff. Anyway, they formed a skiffle group called the Rattlesnakes after Barry got a guitar for Christmas. They were mostly playing cover songs of rock artists and played at a few different clubs around the Manchester area. There's a story that they started singing because they were booked to lip sync at a local cinema, which is something that, like, the cinema just let the kids do every week, like, just a little fun thing for them to do. I don't understand. They were booked yeah. to do a fun little kid thing? They're like, yes, I want these children to have fun. I will well, book you for this. It's, okay. Maybe more like they signed up. Like, they put their name in, and the, okay. and the cinema was just, like, select a different kids to do it on different weeks. Oh, is what I'm okay. guessing okay. is what happened. That I don't know for sense. sure. But on the way to the cinema, they dropped the record that they were supposed to lip sync to and broke it. Oh, my God. So instead, they just sang live. And they received such a positive response that they decided to pursue singing professionally. Well, yeah, of course they did. They're like, everyone's like, good job, kids. Yeah. Like, <laughs> no one's going to be like, oh, that was, that was awful. That you was subpar. Like, you should have just you canceled. <laughs> right. Like, everyone's going to be like, way to go, child. And they're going to be like, I am the single best musician in the history of the world. That's what happens. Yeah. I mean, it worked out for them. So God. <laughs> However, Robin, who was one of the twins, was a bit of a troublemaker. He was a known pyromaniac and <laughs> got in trouble for lighting some billboards on fire. What? So, the local police suggested that the family immigrate to Australia. What? <laughs> what, what did that suggestion <laughs> look like? There was That a, doesn't sound like a suggestion. That sounds no. like a threat. I mean, you know Australia started as a prison colony, right? England sent all their prisoners to Australia. <laughs> That's how it started. Oh my God. So they were literally like, but that's not just go there. That was like <laughs> way back in that was like 1800s. This was, I think around this time there was a lot of British people immigrating to Australia because they thought like jobs were better. Things were like the economy was better down there. They weren't as affected by World War II. So there was less to bounce back from. So a lot of people were doing it at this point. That's wild. Well, anyway, they immigrated to Australia in 1958. Okay, I would too if the police yeah. <laughs> suggested I do something. Pretty Goodbye. Pretty soon after moving, the boy started to perform to earn some pocket money. Barry was also working selling sodas during races at a nearby speedway. He eventually convinced his brothers to join him, and they were hired by the speedway owner to sing songs over the PA system to entertain the crowds in between races. That's so cute. It probably sounded terrible. I'm sure it did. Like PA systems, especially back then, probably weren't great. Um, what does that stand for? Public address, I think. Mm. At this time, they started to call themselves the BGs after Barry's initials, which is just like not BG. It was just the initials BG. So they were the BGs. Mm-hmm. I also think it's after the, I think the owner of the Speedway was also a BG. Like that, those were his initials too. So they just kind of like, yeah, that works. By singing at the Speedway, they got the attention of a local radio DJ who also heard some of Barry's original songs and liked them. Soon after, Barry- We need an age check on this. Um, well, this is 58, 59, 60 and he was born in 46 so 16 cool is that right 14 14 to 16 yeah so like late teens i don't know i i don't want to do math right now so i'm just going to assume that you're right i, I might be i don't know i'm not i'm not good at math 
we both have calculators sitting in front of us. That's yeah. all right. Whatever. I don't know how to work your iPad. 15 year old kid. Great. Yeah, I had to download. Did you know? Fun tangent. It's not very fun. I had to download a calculator app for the iPad because the calculator app like for Apple is not compatible with the iPad. Really? Yes. <laughs> Stupid. Which like what? <laughs> so I had to download a calculator app and I get to change all the colors. That's all. Oh, that's fun though. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, weird. Why would they do that? Yeah, it's stupid. It's a calculator. I don't understand. <laughs> so soon after all of this started happening with the Speedway and the local DJ, Barry quit school and they started to take singing more seriously, performing at clubs and venues around Australia. They had a residency at a popular seaside resort and even started to appear on a few different local television shows. Eventually, they got the attention of an Australian star named Cole Joy. C-O-L- J-O-Y-E. So maybe Cole Joy, but that's not how I would spell either of those two words. So That sounds like a name that would be like now. Like that's a contemporary yeah. artist <laughs> name. Is. He or she, I honestly don't know. I, I was literally just about to say like that's also so androgynous. Like yeah. that is, I, someone take that name right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, They helped the Bee Gees get a record deal in 1963. They released two or three singles a year, but Barry primarily wrote songs for other Australian artists. Barry said about this time, quote, I think we made about seven to 11 singles that all flopped in a row. So we really found out what failure was all about before we even started. In 1965, they had a minor hit with a song called Wine and Women. Uh, wait, I need another <laughs> age check. <laughs> uh, well, this is 65. He was born in... What did I say? 56? 46. So almost 20. He's 19. I call BS. He's never seen a woman. <laughs> At 19? <laughs> How old are the siblings? Uh, maybe like four years younger. Oh my God. <laughs> I don't remember. They've definitely never seen a woman. <laughs> uh, they are three years younger. So they're like 16. Wait, the 65, 46, 19. Never seen a woman. <laughs> None of them. Well, that song convinced the record label to re let them record an actual album. Do you want to hear the song? Yes, and I want to see them sing it. Yeah, you get to because they're little babies. Really? Yeah. There's footage of it? Yeah, they're like on a TV show or something. Oh my god, literally look at that child. Look at that child. He looks like he belongs in the arms. This sounds nothing like the music I've everyone knows. I'm honestly in love with this. This is one of the reasons I'm glad to do this episode because like they had such a deep what repertoire before they even got into disco. So I'm glad like, more people can hear. What shall I do? What shall I do? Cars and this one got all the lights. They look ridiculous. <laughs> well, yeah, I know, but like they literally <laughs> they mooched each other's attractiveness in the room. But like 
so neither of them won. <laughs> yeah, right, well, that's I guess they women. are 16, so yeah. like they have a little time to grow. That's Wine and Women by the Baby Bee Gees. love that. Like, <laughs> I love that a lot. As you can tell, this is definitely not disco, and they didn't have that signature falsetto that they'd become famous for eventually. Yeah, it was a lot deeper than I expected, yeah. and I, they're children. Yeah. Like, this is when I would expect them to be like, what? <laughs> like, voice cracking. Their first album was amazingly titled, The Bee Gees Play and Sing 14 Barry Gibbs Songs. That has little boys recorded this all over it. I don't. I doubt they named it. It was probably the label. But it's just what? <laughs> Where is their PR person? What? <laughs> it was basically just a compilation album of the different singles that they had already released over the previous years. But their label was on the verge of dropping them because they had failed commercially. Oh, well, gee, maybe title their album better. <laughs> the brothers met an American named Nat Kempner, Kipner, who was the new A and R guy at a different record label. I don't know what that means artists and repertoire it's someone who like brings in new artists and is kind of like their point of contact and a label helps them develop that kind of thing okay he eventually took over as the band's manager and negotiated their transfer to his new record label i think he was like a pretty big deal at some label in america and for some reason moved to australia and did his own thing i think i don't remember the new label was small and independent and most of the records were produced at the engineer's home studio that engineer gave the Bee Gees almost unlimited access to that studio, which helped them to greatly improve their skills as recording artists. That's really precious. Yeah. In September of 1966, they released a song called Sticks and Specks. When they released it, the family had already decided to move back to England. While on the boat back, they learned that the song had reached number one in Australia and was a smash hit. Do you want to hear Sticks and Specks? Yes, I do. I cannot Sounds pretty beatly, this song. The other one did too. What are they doing? Which, them sounding kind of beatly, comes back up in a little bit. By the way, it's just like dark silhouettes of them. <laughs> That's very great, actually. <laughs> They're holding him. It's not a bad song. Like I like this song. Yeah, I like it too. Mary Gibbs, a pretty good song. Right. I want to keep listening nope. to it. Look, they're hopping. <laughs> Let's Can we keep listening? Spicks and spicks. I didn't listen. I was just looking at their silhouettes. No! Right. What else happens? <laughs> I have to know the rest of the story. You can watch it later. You need to post that. That's an amazing <laughs> music video. You can post it. You have our Twitter login. I don't do anything and you know it. <laughs> I rarely do things on Twitter. So Barry sent demo tapes to Brian Epstein. Do you remember Brian Epstein? No. He was the famous manager of the Beatles, who were currently, at this time, the biggest band in the world. So that is pretty audacious. Is he the one who made them all wear suits? Yes. Uh. I mean, I feel like he's the one who kind of like made them, obviously their music too, but like he kind of like, I don't think 
Without him, I don't think they would be the Beatles. He's a big deal. So it's very audacious for Barry to just send him demos. <laughs> I, I'm loving this kid. I'm not going to lie. Like, I'm all for it. Someone told him as a child that he was going to be a star, and he said, you're right, I am. <laughs> and he has never stopped believing it. So uh, Brian gave the tapes to his partner, Robert Stigwood. Robert was wowed by the band's talent and songs and immediately set up an audition for them. Stigwood said that he loved their composing, adding, quote, I also loved their harmony singing. It was unique, the sound they made. I suppose it was a sound only brothers could make, end quote. That's true. Yeah. Family family bands are like... You got that chemistry going. Something else. This meeting led to a five-year contract with Polydor Records in the UK with a distribution deal in the US. So Barry was right to just send his demos. Like, there might be more to that story, but to me it just sounds like... <laughs> Shoot your shot. Yeah. When they recorded their first international album, Stigwood already had a robust marketing plan ready to go for it. Is it better than the Bee Gees sing songs that <laughs> Bee Gees wrote? Yes. It Wh- doesn't involve suits? <laughs> it doesn't. It involves mystery. What? <laughs> One of the ways he did this was he sent their first single called... New York mining disaster, 1941. Oh my God. <laughs> Tell me that they didn't, that they didn't name that first album. Tell me that that was not their idea. Cause it absolutely was. Listen to that. That's true. Well, that was their first single. Oh my and God. He sent that to radio stations in a blank sleeve with only the song title showing. So many stations. Yeah. Cause you like, people would be like, what the is this? Like, <laughs> well, many stations thought it was a new Beatles song. And started to play it in heavy rotation. Good for Which them. led to it climbing into the top 20 in the UK and the US. That's hilarious. Because especially if it's coming from Stigwood, who is Brian Epstein's partner, like, and it sounds kind of like the Beatles, you're going to assume it's a Beatles song and then it's everywhere. <laughs> and he, he didn't bother correcting him. He was like, nah. So after this ad is New York Mining Disaster 1941. There is something I would like you all to see It's just a photograph of someone that I knew Have you seen my wife, Mr. Jones? Do you know what it's like on the outside? Don't go talking to Like the like, I could be fooled that this was a Beatles song. Especially like later Beatles, where they start getting a little trippy. Maybe someone is digging underground, or have they given up and all gone home to bed? Thinking those who once all right, well, that's New York mining disaster of 1941. What? I'm just it's not a bad song. I like it. Yeah, it's random. Yeah, and sad, but like, I think sure. I feel like that's very Bob Dylan esque, because Bob it Dylan is. would write there's like a story about something that happened. And like, and Bob Dylan was very big at this point, so I feel like they're kind of doing that. Their next single, which was released with their name and no trickery, also climbed into the top twenty. 
they were starting to establish themselves as a legitimate star artist. I would like to know how they like went back and were like, oh, hey, you know that song? That's like us. <laughs> like when and how did that happen? I don't know. Probably whenever they had to sell it in stores. Their second album, released in 1967, largely repeated the success of their first album. It contained two singles that hit the top 10 in the UK, with one of them hitting number one. The album was a bit more of a rock sound than some of their previous work, and it also allowed them to tour the US for the first time. I'm really excited about this. Well, I don't play any songs from that. Sorry. <laughs> we got a long episode here. No, but that sounds like awesome. A more rock sound from them? Like, that sounds great. Well, you can listen to it on your own time. I don't know what it is. It was around this time that Barry sort of met John Lennon. He was at a nightclub with Pete Townsend, who is the leader of the band The Who. They were sharing a drink when Pete asked if Barry wanted to meet John Lennon. John was still wearing his costume from the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album cover shoot that they did earlier that day. That's amazing. So they walked up to him and Pete introduced Barry, to which John replied, how you doing, without turning around. <laughs> so Barry says, quote, I met John Lennon's back. I didn't meet his front, end quote. <laughs> so he's John sorta... Lennon, stop being an <laughs> asshole. What the hell? I mean, probably everyone was trying to be introduced to John Lennon at that point. They went on a series of international tours, which eventually led Barry and Robin to collapse from exhaustion on a flight to Turkey. Despite that, they kept touring throughout Europe, backed by a massive orchestra band. But by 1968, tensions were starting to get frayed in the group. Probably not helped by an exhausting schedule, the brothers were struggling with each other to determine the musical direction of the group. Barry was always seen as the de facto leader, which probably annoyed the twins. The tension could be seen in some of their performances and recordings. During the recording of their next album in 1969, which was a concept album, Robin left the group and started his own solo project. Typical Robin. <laughs> Barry and Maurice continued on and recruited their sister to sing with them. <laughs> Robin later said, quote, That was a period where we had tremendous egos for success, where we just stopped talking to each other. We had people saying that you're responsible for the success of the group, and he's successful, so we all had our own sort of court, end quote. I don't know what that means. And I think he's saying that we had big egos and uh, he's yeah. the one who left to go solo. So I think he was saying they all had big egos and they had people around them who were basically just yes men praising them and telling them how like massive they were and how like you're so good and talented. And it's like, that's what they're used to. Their ego. <laughs> <Yeah>. Again, <laughs> that's my point from the beginning. The next album without Robin was not successful. Robin's solo album was also not successful. In December of 1969, Maurice and Barry decided to part ways professionally, but that didn't last long. By August of 1970, Barry said, quote, Robin rang me in Spain where I was on holiday saying, let's do it again. <laughs> so the three of them started to work together as the Bee Gees again after only like a few months. Of like you not just being need a, a break. Yeah. They released an album called Two Years On, which had a single hit number two in the U.S. after they promoted it on several different like TV shows. Here is that single called Lonely Days. Good morning, Mary. 
those giant makeup brushes behind me? I'm really confused. Lonely days. All right. It's slow, but it's good. They released a few more albums and singles to moderate success in the early 70s, but by 1973, they were in a creative rut. At the suggestion of Eric Clapton, they moved to Miami in 1975 to work on their next album with an R&B producer. They first started... Interesting. Yeah. All right. This was also, 1975 was when disco was starting to pick up. Mm-hmm. And, like, the main hub was New York, but mm-hmm. also Miami was kind of a big thing. Sure. So, it's possible Eric knew that. and was just, like, suggesting that they might fit in down there. So, they first started to work on ballads, but switched their focus to more rhythmic disco-style songs that were popular, especially in Florida at the time. Some of the songs featured Barry's first attempt at falsetto singing in the background vocals. The group really liked the sound, and so did the public. The album shot up the charts, and the next album was drenched in Barry's falsetto and disco synthesizer sounds. And that is the album that would launch them into stardom that they'd never seen in the U.S. Here's the song, Nights on Broadway, which was the first one that they recorded that featured Barry's signature falsetto. Yeah, you can tell they're starting to switch up the style a little bit. Disco. In 1976 and 1977, they were approached for a project called Saturday Night Fever. At the beginning, the Bee Gees were not a part of the project, and the filmmakers used other songs, but they couldn't get the clearance to actually use those songs in the movie, 
because the label wanted to pursue a different disco-themed project. That was kind of confusing. Did you track with that? So, like, they're doing another movie or show or something that is going to have, like, disco, and they're like, we want these songs for that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, it sounds like they all of the original group of songs were with one label, and that label's like, no, because we want to do this other thing. Um, so, during post-production, they turned to the Bee Gees. Their manager, Stigwood, was heavily involved with the movie and asked them to be a part. Barry later said, quote, We were recording our new album in the north of France, and we'd written about and recorded about four or five songs for the new album when Stigwood rang from L.A. and said, We're putting together this little film, low budget, called Tribal Rights of a Saturday Night. Would you have any songs on hand? And we said, Look, we can't. We haven't any time to sit down and write for a film. We didn't know what it was about. End quote. So they weren't, like, thrilled about the idea. Mm-hmm. The brothers eventually agreed and wrote and recorded the songs in basically one weekend. When Stigwood... Oh, I just scrolled. Sorry. When Stigwood and the producers came to hear the songs, they flipped out and said they'd be perfect. But the Bee Gees had no real idea what the movie was even about <laughs> at that point. Neither do I. <laughs> but they were in the process of finding a new sound. This was around 1975 or 1976 before they had really gone straight disco, even though they were kind of flirting with it. Yeah. They were struggling to get hits, and their sound was played out. They had started to think that maybe their time as a band had run its course. So when Stigwood asked them to make the songs more disco, they just kind of went with it to see what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. They wrote a song called Saturday Night, but there, was already, there were already so many songs with that title, so they changed it to Stayin' Alive. That song would change their lives. They've had mixed feelings about the song over the years. They are proud of it and think it's a good song and it helped revitalize their careers, but it also cemented them in so many people's minds as only a disco band, despite their long and varied career before that. Here is Stayin' Alive. Video is wild. Oh, great. Can I mean, we actually not, it's watch just it? Weird. Looks so dumb. Wear the jacket or don't. This has like boys messing around The weird thing about this song is like it sounds so like happy and heavy, but like if you listen to it, it's like about like struggle and hardship and trying to push through it. <laughs> I mean, that's disco for you. Yeah. See, that's how you don't wear a jacket. That's the <laughs> normal. I'm not gonna lie, I don't know what they're saying. <laughs> I never have. Whether you're a brother, whether a mother, you're staying alive, staying alive. Feel the city breaking and everybody's shaking. Staying alive, staying alive. You ready to stop watching it? No, I'm fascinated by their hair. 
like, I don't know who helps him with his, but his hair is glorious. <laughs> but then, is someone doing the other guy's hair? I guess his hair is just longer, so the other it's heavier. Balding. Well, yeah. So that's his issue. Right. There's a very stark difference between the yeah. amount of hair on the two men's heads. But like other guy with like the really long hair, like I just, I guess I like it. All right, well, that's staying alive. We'll move on. It's not a bad song. It's very overplayed. Not a bad song. Saturday Night Fever was a massive success, and three of their songs from it reached number one. We'll see. I said Which this. Which three? I, I don't know. I feel what? like I've proved. No, I guess this is right. The sound The soundtrack is still the second best-selling soundtrack of all time behind The Bodyguard, which was a Whitney Houston movie slash soundtrack. And I think we figured that right, out last episode. Right, because we looked into it. Yeah. It is the only disco album to ever win a Grammy for Album of the Year. It has been included in almost every greatest albums list that it can possibly be included in. It has since sold something like 40 million copies. It started a period of chart dominance by the Gibb Brothers. At one point, this is pretty crazy, at one point, five songs written by the brothers were in the top ten at the same time. Wow. Making them the first band to do that since the Beatles. Wow. Yeah. Who else has done it? Ed Sheeran. (laughs) Or uh, Taylor, probably. Yeah. But yeah, like, I I don't think they all, they performed all of them because Barry was still writing for other artists. So I think like some was performed, but they wrote all five. Yeah. And that's just like thinking about how successful and like life-changing that album was and they wrote it basically in a weekend it's very wild <laughs> they did it in a weekend didn't really want to do it like it's crazy thinking back on the success of saturday night fever barry said quote fever was number one every week it wasn't just like a hit album it was number one every single week for 25 weeks whoa it was just an amazing crazy extraordinary time I remember not being able to answer the phone, and I remember people climbing over my walls. I was quite grateful when it stopped. It was too unreal. In the long run, your life is better if it's not like that on a constant basis. Nice though it was. End quote. He sounds like such a lovely, grounded person. (laughs) He seems cool. Their younger brother also started a solo career, like not in the band, brother. Started a solo career, and his first three singles, produced by Barry, all hit number one. Why didn't they invite him? <laughs> they, like, got their sister in, which, think, like, great girl power, but, like... I think he was significantly younger, so they might have just not felt like he was ready at that uh, point. I don't know. Because that was also 10 years before this. Like, this is, like, 69. That was back in, like... Or 79. 79? Yeah, 79. That was back in, like, 69. The summer of <laughs> Their follow-up album to Saturday Night Fever also had three number one singles, which is just crazy. Barry became the first writer to have four straight number one hits, which broke the Lennon-McCartney record. Wow. <laughs> Anytime you can break a Beatles record is just like absurd. Yeah. However, they were completely tied to disco at this point, so their success rose and fell with disco. By 1979, the American public was sick of disco, and the backlash started. That's so sad. Four years. Yeah. 
They released an album in 1981 that failed to break the top 45, which was a tremendous failure after three years of unbelievable hits. They also all released solo albums that didn't do too well commercially. But the brothers kept finding success behind the scenes. They wrote and produced songs for star artists like Diana Ross and Barbra Streisand. Nice. In 1983, Barry worked with country artist Kenny Rogers on his new album that featured the song that Barry wrote for him called Islands in the Stream. Kenny recorded it with Dolly Parton, and it became one of the best-selling country singles of all time. It was written by a BG. That's so cool. I feel like a lot of people don't know. I feel like they have the vibe where they would enjoy, like, they went out kind of with a bang. Yeah. And then they can do other stuff. Yeah. I feel like Barry probably enjoys being a little bit more behind the scenes at this point. Like, he had his moment in the sun. Now he's like, I'm just going to write now. Yeah. I think he likes that. I mean, I don't know. I haven't asked him, but. I'm not sure about Robin. Robin is a wild card. Yeah. (laughs) In 1988, the Bee Gees planned on letting their younger brother Andy into the group. Finally! However, in March of 1988, Andy passed away. Oh my God. Of myocarditis. Oh my God. After a viral infection. Oh my God. He was only 30 years old. Damn. Yeah. Their album in 1989 featured a song dedicated to him called Wish You Were Here which would be the Bee Gees' first top 10 single in over a decade. Here is Wish You Were Here. Musically, they were lo- like they were losing me until the <laughs> chorus hit, and then I was like, "Oh, okay." Yeah, I was like, "Man, they really were just so like it's so emotional for them that like yeah. it doesn't matter, you know, <laughs> what it sounds like." And I'm like, "This is kind of boring." <laughs> I know it's not. I know it's sad, but like, but then they hit me, so it's okay. It's also kind of hard to put a sad song into like their style. Like, I, yeah, like, it's hard to do that. So, aside from the musical struggles, the 80s were also a bit of a rough period for the boys personally. Robin had a highly contentious divorce from his wife, 
their marriage went off the rails due to his addiction to amphetamines. That all sounds like Robin. The divorce proceedings took a nasty turn when Robin started to make threats against his wife's lawyers and sending them aggressive messages. Oh, way to go, Robin. Okay. Insinuating that he'd hired a hitman to kill them. Okay. The lawyers reported the messages and Robin was investigated by the FBI, but eventually his wife and her lawyers didn't press charges, so it was all dropped. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) The other twin, Maurice, was an alcoholic who was starting to have a little bit of health problems from his alcohol abuse. His alcoholism also ruined his brief marriage to pop star Lulu. Who is Lulu? His drinking came to a head in 1991 after a month-long bender when he threatened his wife, not Lulu, his second wife, and kid with a gun. I need these men to... (laughs) Just calm down. See, like this whole time I've been thinking, man, they really have just been like encouraged all of their life, yeah. but they're not like weird about it. Here's the weird. Yeah. I they're mean, violent. I don't like it. Feels like it was hard to be a star in this age and not be addicted to something. Like it's just Okay, lots I mean, of people with addiction don't like yeah, threaten to have people murdered. <laughs> so that wife fled to Barry's house and said she'd divorce him unless he got it under control. So he went to rehab. Maurice said he'd battled booze since the 70s when John Lennon introduced him to his favorite drink, a scotch and coke. Honestly, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He said, quote, if John had given me cyanide, I would have drunk the cyanide. I was so in awe of the man, end quote. Also same. Maurice's desire to get sober also had a lot to do with Andy's death, their brother, and his failure to reach Andy before he died. It also prompted Barry and Robin to help him however they could. Uh, Maurice eventually got sober in the early 90s and would stay sober. Go, Maurice. Proud of you. Please don't threaten people with guns. My script says Barry eventually got sober, but I'm pretty sure it's Maurice. I think I just typed it wrong. Okay. Throughout the 90s, and you'll notice Barry didn't have any problematic stuff during this time. He's just like, What no. is Barry doing? I don't know. But, like, it, I feel like that says a lot of, like, I don't know. I haven't heard a lot of stories about Barry. He might be bad behind the scenes. I don't know. But, like, I feel like it says a lot that Maurice's wife fled to Barry's house. Like, she knew yeah, that he would protect her and all of that. Like, that's a good sign. The hair gives off, like, angel vibes. <laughs> <laughs> Throughout the 90s, the band continued to write, record, perform, and produce songs. They worked on a few new songs for the Broadway production of Saturday Night Fever. They also wrote for other artists. They put out some singles and some albums, but they weren't seeing the same success that they once had. On December 31st, 1999, they closed out the millennium with what would be their final full-sized concert that they called BG2K. There's a little bit of that show. What? Oh my god. They're naming a thing. <laughs> not the best record it is not it's not really to hear him it's mostly just to see him hanging out for the last time 
All right, well, that's the last bit of that. The cameraman for this, though. <laughs> In 2001, they released what would turn out to be their final album of new material. It was a success, reaching the top 10 in the UK and the top 20 in the US. On June 12, 2003, Maurice went to the hospital for emergency surgery on a twisted intestine. Mm. The issue in surgery caused him to go into cardiac arrest. Mm. He would die later that day at the age of 53. Damn. Robin, being Maurice's twin, probably struggled with his death more than anyone. He would say, quote, We were kids together and teenagers. We spent the whole of our lives with each other because of our music. I can't accept that he's dead. I just imagine he's alive somewhere else. Yeah, that has got to be wild. Yeah. For a time, Robin and Barry decided to stop the Bee Gees, but later picked it back up to honor Maurice's legacy. However, they'd only ever performed little one-off shows. The band was essentially broken up. Throughout the 2000s, the brothers had performed together periodically on a number of different shows, but mostly they work on their own solo stuff. In November of 2011, it was announced that Robin had been diagnosed with liver cancer. He would pass away in 2012 of liver and kidney failure after pneumonia put him into a coma. Robin and Barry had famously clashed over the course of their lives and careers. And at his funeral, Barry said, quote, Even right up to the end, we found conflict with each other, which now means nothing. It just means nothing. If there's conflict in your lives, get rid of it. End quote. Since his death, Barry has continued on since uh, Robin's death, not Barry's death. Since Robin's death, Barry has continued on with solo shows and pushing forward the legacy of the Bee Gees. So Barry's still out there doing stuff. The Bee Gees are a group that have probably spawned just as much ridicule as praise, but their legacy should be more widely appreciated. Yeah, overall, I'm a fan. Yeah. The, the, I'm really tied up, though, on the <laughs> on the both of the twins threatening violence. Like, yeah. I need... I, <laughs> Yikes. But I like, I, like, I like the music and the story. Yeah. They've been praised by the likes of Beyonce, The Who... John Lennon, Carrie Underwood, and oh, why did I put this? I never pronounce them right. Tame Impala, Tame Impala. How do you? I've always heard Tame Impala, but I'm the last person okay. that would know. Well, whoever that is, but like, <laughs> <laughs> like however you say that name. Someone is what tell I meant. us how to say it. <laughs> I mean, you like, just search it. It is on the internet. Yeah, but you know, who cares? It's just like it's when you look at that list and how like eclectic that is and like how wide their reach was it's crazy it's crazy yeah like the who one of the most legendary rock bands john lennon who's john lennon carrie underwood like it's just it's wild their careers were so much more than the brief five years that they were a disco band but even if it wasn't that time was more than enough to cement them as legends the group are to date the most successful family and sibling band of all time they're the most successful musical trio of all time and the most successful musical act with ties to Australia. I don't know how they judge that, but. <laughs> all right. Well, that's the Bee Gees. Yeah, but what about the Jonas Brothers, though? <laughs> they're not tied to Australia. But they're. I a think trio. the Bee Gees are still outsold them. Because they're the most. They're the biggest family band. They're the biggest. Like, that means they had to have done better than even, like, the Jackson Five. Like, they're. That's wild. Yeah. They were, they were they were massive for that period of time. 
All right. Any final thoughts on the Bee Gees? I like Barry. Barry seems cool. People will probably tweet us with all these horror stories of Barry since she seems like most famous people are messed Awful. up. Awful. But yeah. <laughs> That's not true, though. Except That's the not people true. we're talking about next week. Who? It's ABBA. Yes. <laughs> and ABBA, well, man, they're fun. I like ABBA. I'm excited. All right. Well, I say next week. I don't December. Uh, whenever we get that episode out, the next one will be about Appa. Maybe by Halloween. <laughs> All right, any final thoughts? I want to go eat a I'm in about the news, but okay. That is my final thought. Okay. Goodbye. Goodbye, people.